Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 8. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing seven tales to terrify you, all of them from author William Dolphin, about terrifying transportation, devilish dirt, sinister stories, Chilling caregivers, infectious infestations, barred basements, and abominable attractions. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first four spine-tingling stories. 
If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight from William Dolphin follows someone so in love with books that she doesn't even look where she's going, and her transportation is not her usual ride home. Without further ado, I present to you the Ashland Express. The Chicago suburb of Inglewood is no stranger to murder. In 1893, it was home to Dr. H. H. Holmes, who built a hotel with the sole purpose of murdering his employees and patrons. A good hundred or so died in his gas-rigged rooms, their bodies stripped down to the bones and sold off as medical skeletons, or destroyed in vats of acid in giant furnaces. Yes, Inglewood is rife with ghosts, very angry ghosts, fueled by thoughts of unanswered revenge and memories of torture. Though mostly invisible to the naked eye, their rage and suffering can drive people mad, and sometimes, on very rare occasions, they can drive them home. Belinda Young was a librarian at the Austin Irving branch of the Chicago Public Library. Every day she'd catch the number X9 Ashland Express from her home in Inglewood and ride it all the way to work. In the evening, the same bus would take her home. She'd sit on the bus and keep to herself, burrowing her face in a book borrowed from work. She was neither young nor particularly comely, with thin black hair that was forever frizzled, a nose sharp like a hawk's and small eyes that seemed substantially larger when viewed through the thick curvature of her glasses. She had little to worry about from some of the more unsavory characters who frequented the same route every day. She lived alone in an apartment filled with books, her favorites were the romance novels, but she was embarrassed by this and often hid the covers with their lascivious depictions of bare-chested men and high-bosomed women, out of fear of being judged by her peers. She had no pets, as she neither had the time nor interest to take care of anything. Nor did she have friends, as that meant going out from time to time. To her co-workers, she was a mystery. Belinda liked it that way. One evening, her passion for her work got the better of her, and she found herself staying well past normal work hours, trying to sort through a stack of new books. When she stepped outside, it was dark. The sky was overcast, but there was a rumble in the distance that spoke of the possibility of an approaching storm. Belinda walked to the bus stop and stood under a streetlight, reading her latest selection from the fiction section. Several minutes passed. There was hooting and laughing in the distance as a pair of hoodlums walked by across the street, kicking a glass bottle that lay in their path. Down the street, a car idled outside a convenience store with the silhouette of a passenger in it. 
She showed no signs of worry. She was too wrapped up in her story to even notice them. The Ashland Express seemed to be running late, but to a person like Belinda, time traveled only as fast as her attention allowed it. When the bus finally pulled up, she climbed aboard and showed her pass to the driver without taking her nose out of the pages of her book. She walked to the back and seated herself next to a quiet gentleman wearing a bowler hat. The bus rocked and moaned down the dark streets. Belinda read her book quietly and never once looked up. Somebody coughed near the front. There was whispering from a couple across the aisle. Nothing disturbed her, though. From behind, a hand gently grabbed her shoulder and shook her, whispering, "'What are you doing?' Belinda flinched, startled by the person's sudden intrusion into her personal space and slightly embarrassed, having been caught reading one of her body novels. Turning to look over her shoulder, she saw a young girl, possibly a college student, staring at her with a strange look. She wore a gray hoodie with greasy blonde hair hanging out of it. Belinda frowned. She didn't like being stared at. The girl made her feel like some sort of freak, like a third eye had sprouted in the middle of her forehead. Without a word, she got up from her seat and moved to one closer to the front of the bus, beside an old lady wearing a white shawl. The elderly woman was knitting fervently, lost in a world of her own. Getting comfortable, Belinda took a look back at the girl. She was still staring at her, shaking her head at Belinda, and silently mouthing the word, No. The bus rumbled on into the night. Belinda returned to her book, once again reaching a state of quiet peace that let time slip by unnoticed. Before she realized it, she had finished the book. That's strange, she thought. I don't normally finish one of these in a day. She looked up, wondering how many stops were left. But outside the bus, it was as black as coal. She couldn't see the street signs or even the street lights. In fact, if it weren't for the rocking motion as the bus drove on, she wouldn't have been able to tell they were even in motion. She looked across the aisle. An old man with shock-white hair and wire-framed bifocals was staring back at her, much in the same manner as the girl had been earlier. He shook his head at Belinda, causing her to once again feel self-conscious. Ignoring his rude manners, she got up and walked to the front of the bus. The driver sat vacantly in his blue jacket with a name tag that read Quinlan, looking out the front windshield at nothing in particular. Belinda couldn't make out the road ahead and wondered how he was able to see where he was going. She held on to the pole and cleared her throat to get the driver's attention. "'Excuse me,' Belinda said quietly. The bus driver turned. He looked old upon old. The skin on his face was stretched tight and almost had a yellow luster to it. He squinted and looked Belinda up and down for a moment. Never a word was said. He simply looked her over, then looked her over again, like he wasn't sure what to make of her. "'When did we get to Ashland in 63rd? The driver remained quiet. He took a look in the mirror that allowed him to see the occupants of the bus, but when that didn't suffice, he turned and leaned around Belinda, looking at the other passengers. Oh, do keep your eyes on the road, please. 
Belinda said, gesturing with her hands. The old man sat forward and lifted his hat to scratch his head. How did you get on here? He finally asked. What do you mean? Belinda replied, confused. I got on at the Irving Park stop. Oh, dear, the bus driver replied. I wasn't paying no attention. Well, there ain't nothing I can do about it now, ma'am. Terribly sorry. What do you mean? This is the express. We stop from time to time, but nobody gets off till the end of the line, ma'am. Well, when is that? Belinda was perplexed. The bus had always stopped at Ashland in 63rd, and numerous stops before it. Why was this one different? I don't really know, he said, letting go of the steering wheel to shrug his shoulders. I've been driving this bus for a good long while now, and I can't ever recall reaching the end of the line. Belinda frowned. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Can you let me off, please? He looked at her sadly. I can't stop till there's somebody to pick up, but I'll see what I can do when that time comes. Thank you. Belinda walked back to sit by the knitting lady. She had nothing else to read, so she sat and looked at her hands. She didn't want to look at the other passengers, because most of them seemed to be staring at her. Footsteps came from the back of the bus. Belinda knew who it was even before the girl put her hand on her shoulder again, shaking her. Belinda turned and scowled at her, but the girl seemed unbothered by it. Do you have a problem? she asked the girl. You don't belong on this bus, the girl replied. There was a tinge of fear in her voice. And how would you know? Because I can hear your heart beating. The girl pulled up the sleeves of her gray hoodie and extended her arms out toward Belinda, palms up. Jagged, crimson cuts extended from her wrist to halfway up her arms. They were deep but not bleeding. Belinda choked back a scream, stuffing her fist into her mouth. I did this, the girl said solemnly, and then the bus came for me. Belinda looked away, clenching her eyes shut. When she opened them, the old lady in the shawl had set down her knitting and was smiling at her. Reaching up with liver-spotted hands, she undid the shawl and bunched it up in her fist. She sat there a moment while Belinda looked on, puzzled. My name's Dolores. The old lady started. I lived on Union. Doctors told me I had inoperable cancer. I didn't want to just sit by and waste away. My husband, Charlie, God rest his soul, died in 65. Never had any kids. So one day, in the middle of knitting, I decided to get Charlie's old handgun out of the shoebox in the back of the closet. And then I sat down, poured myself a nice glass of tea, and afterward... She turned her head away, tilting it so Belinda couldn't see where her hair had clumped up and the back of her skull was missing. Then Belinda did scream, and she shoved the college girl aside, grappling with the hand straps as the bus went over some very bumpy terrain. She looked back at the other passengers with horror as, one by one, they stood up from their seats. 
The old lady tied her shawl back on and shook her head sadly at Belinda. Mr. Quinlan there swallowed strychnine back when... When was it, Patrick? 1914, the old man said, never taking his eyes off the road. This is crazy, Belinda stammered. Her hands were shaking and she let go of the hand straps, falling to her knees. I don't know how you ended up on here, the young girl said, but you don't belong here. You need to get off. Nobody gets off till the end of the line, the driver snapped. Surely you can make an exception for this one, Patty, the old lady said kindly. She smiled at Belinda and offered her a hand to help her to her feet. The bus driver grumbled, I can slow it down and open the doors, and if someone were to take that opportunity to hop off, well, good luck to him. But other than that, I ain't stopping this bus unless there's someone to pick up. With the bus noticeably slowed down, and the old man pulled the lever to open the doors. Belinda's mind reeled. It all seemed like a nightmare. The old lady's hands were holding hers, and they were as ice cold as the college girls. Behind them, the other passengers nodded and gestured for her to go. I don't even know where we are. Go, now, the young girl said with authority in her voice. She took the old lady by the arm and guided her away from Belinda, back to her seat and her knitting. Belinda turned, walked to the door, and looked out into the darkness, feeling the wind on her face. She looked back one last time at the bus's occupants, then covered her face and pitched forward out the door with a prayer on her lips. She hit rough pavement and tucked into a ball, scraping her elbows and her knees as she rolled a good distance. When she collected herself, first thing Belinda noticed were the street lights overhead. She got up, bruised and bloodied, and limped over to a bench to sit a moment. Looking around, she realized she was just down the street from the bus stop where she had boarded. There were the lights of the convenience store. There was the car with the mysterious passengers still idling. She hadn't gone more than a few yards down the road. Shaken and tired, Belinda rose to her feet. She limped toward the convenience store to ask for help. It wasn't until she came up beside the idling car that she noticed the hose coming out of its tailpipe, snaking along the side and disappearing in the driver's side window. The figure inside the car was a middle-aged man. His jaw hung slack and his eyes were closed. Belinda pounded on the window, but there was no response. Still in a daze from her recent experience, she ran limping into the convenience store, where she'd startled the man behind the counter and called 911. The clerk ran outside with a bat from under the register and proceeded to break the window of the car. She could hear him hacking and coughing as he climbed in a ways and struggled to pull out the car's occupant. Belinda breathed a sigh of relief she went to the freezer section to get a bag of frozen peas to hold on her throbbing head. As she shut the glass door, she saw in the reflection out the door of the store a bus pulling away. When she turned around, the bus was gone. All she could see was the idling car and the clerk frantically trying to resuscitate the other man. 
Linda didn't need to wait for the ambulance to arrive to know that it wasn't going to do any good. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed the Ashland Express as written by author William Dolphin and performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash dolphin. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash dolphin. Spelled D-A-L-P-H-I-N. This will bring you to his listing for Don't Look Away, a collection of frightening tales for your enjoyment that not only contain a few of tonight's tales, but also was published in connection with Chilling Entertainment. And by all means, if you enjoy what you read, don't forget to leave them a five-star review and a kind word, and let them know that you heard about them here on this show. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Our second dug-up entry, courtesy once again of William Dolphin, tells of a sweet-natured young man who, after an encounter with the supernatural, decides to share it with a friend in the same situation. But when you disturb the dead, things don't always go as planned. Without further ado, I present to you a touch of graveyard dirt. I made a terrible mistake. You see, it started when I was seven years old, and my father tried to reshingle the roof all by himself. I don't think he really had an idea what he was doing, but I heard him tell my mother that morning, how hard can it be? He should have asked the same question in regards to the driveway. I remember I was playing in the front yard, a good distance from the house to avoid being struck by falling shingles, as per my father's instructions, when I heard him use some of the words that made my mother frown, followed by what can only be described as the sound of him sliding bump, 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 bump down the side and over the gutter. When I rounded the corner of the house, it looked like he was flying. He had his arms out like a pair of wings and his legs stretched out behind him. 
It was only a second of the image. Then he hit the pavement with a sharp crunch, his neck bending at an almost 90-degree angle, and his head splitting open like a watermelon as the rest of his body immediately went limp and collapsed into a pile on top of him. No, I didn't scream at the sight. I still had the image of him flying in my head. Instead, I just sat there on my big wheel, my mouth hanging slightly open while my brain tried to process what I'd just seen. Then, as my mother retells it, I went inside and casually informed her that Daddy had fallen off the roof and was dead, with all of the emotion befit witnessing the same events on an afternoon cartoon. Dubious at first, she leaned over the sink to look out the kitchen window to verify my claim. Then she did all the screaming for me. We had him interred at Hillside Cemetery, just down the road from where we lived. We got a large tombstone with his name on it, along with husband and father, and the two most significant dates of his life. It's probably a good thing they didn't have his last words etched in it as an epitaph. The weekend after his funeral, my mother and I walked down the road to Hillside and visited his grave. While she wept and talked to the tombstone as if it were him, I crouched down at the other end, took a handful of fresh dirt, and hid it in my pocket. In my mind, I was keeping him close to me. Later, at home, I put the dirt in a little glass jar with a snap-on lid. That night, I dreamed that my father came into my room and petted my hair. In my dream, I sat up and hugged him and told him that I missed him and I was glad he was back. He kissed me on my forehead and promised he would always be with me. It was such a vivid dream that when I woke up later, I wasn't sure if I had actually been awake. I could still feel his cold lips on my skin. Days later, I broke out into a rash that started on my face. The doctor suspected it was poison oak, but typical remedies didn't seem to help. I didn't tell him, or my mother, what I suspected, that my father had visited me after he was dead, and that it was his kiss that caused the rash. When I had a chance, I threw the dirt away. The rash eventually subsided, but I ended up with a scar over my eyebrow as a reminder. That may seem bad, but I honestly didn't think it was. My father reached out to me from beyond the grave and left a mark on me to remind me he'd always be there. No, that was not the mistake, but in a way, it led to it. You see, years later, when my best friend Leslie's father passed away, she sank into this terrible gloom. She had always been close with her dad, so I thought the greatest gift I could give her was one more moment together to say goodbye to him. I made it my mission to give her just that, and I knew exactly how to do it. The day after his funeral, I returned once again to Hillside Cemetery, this time with a trowel and a little flower pot located his grave and filled the pot with it. Then at school, I gave Leslie the pot of dirt and told her I had planted a forget-me-not for her. It was alive, of course. 
I wasn't about to touch the dirt myself, just to plant a seed. The idea was to put it in her possession, thereby giving her the chance to have a dream of her father just as I had. It didn't work. I mean, it did, but instead of joy, Leslie seemed to fall deeper into her depression. She stopped eating at lunchtime, stopped socializing after school, stopped attending track meets with me. I'd ask her if everything was okay and she'd clam up and excuse herself, running away from me. I could only figure that she hadn't actually touched the dirt yet, so I decided to ease the process along. Hey, how's the flower? I asked her one day. She wouldn't even look at me anymore. Nothing yet. Have you been watering it? Sure. Well, okay. So if she touched it, what went wrong? I thought on it. It didn't even really occur to me that maybe it had nothing to do with the dirt, you know? Maybe my father had visited me for some other reason. Or maybe my dream had really just been a dream, and the rash and scar were indeed just a case of poison oak. I had wanted so badly to believe in my own father's visit that I never once considered that my own sadness had led to an imaginary return from beyond the grave. Days later, Leslie didn't show up for school. After several more days passed with her absence, I stopped by her house with homework. Her mother answered the door, looking much the same as Leslie had. She took Leslie's homework from me, but wouldn't let me come inside. Is Leslie all right? I asked. Her mother shook her head. Leslie's got a dermatological condition. Holy shit. I knew what that meant, but I asked anyway. Uh, what? She's got a rash. Can I see her? She sighed. Okay, but don't touch her. According to the doctor, it might be contagious. Not as contagious as you think, I thought. I won't. Leslie's mother escorted me up to her room, knocked on the door and let her know I was there. Come in. Leslie's voice was almost a whisper. I found her propped up in bed with the covers up to her armpits. She was watching TV on an old set her mother had placed on the nightstand, next to an assortment of ointments and skin creams and bottles with prescription information on the sides. That dour look was still on her face. More importantly, that dour look was the only thing on her face. I didn't see a rash anywhere. She must be on the mend, I thought. I heard you caught something. I walked around to the other side of her bed, examining the seemingly flawless texture of her cheeks and forehead. I spied the little pot of dirt over on the windowsill and smiled to myself, but then frowned, realizing that Leslie seemed just as unhappy now as before. Maybe seeing her father again reminded her of the loss. Maybe it hadn't been the gift I thought it had been. It's, yeah, I've got... She couldn't finish the words. Instead, she started crying. 
She tried to hold the tears back for a moment, then surrendered to them, covering her face with her hands and collapsing into a fit of racking sobs. Her mother had said not to touch her, but I knew she didn't have anything contagious. I put my arm around her shoulder and let her cry against my chest, patting her hair and telling her it was okay. It's not as bad as you think. You have no idea. She managed to squeak out. It's not just the rash. I've been having such awful dreams. I don't want to sleep anymore. What? That was not what I expected to hear. Ever since my dad died, these nightmares. Nightmares? I think he's haunting me. She was hysterical. And I hugged her tighter, hoping to calm her lest her mother came in and interrupted us. And I think he did this to me. Your father gave you the rash? Though I thought I already knew the answer to my question, the surprise in my voice at that moment was genuine. Leslie shook her head and wiped her eyes. No, no, the man in my nightmares. That's when it felt like my heart stopped in my chest. I thought you said your father was haunting you. No, it's this old man. He's, he's frightening looking. It didn't make any sense. What old man was she talking about? Why would he be showing up in Leslie's dreams instead of her father? My brain felt like it was swimming in jelly. I couldn't think straight. Well, the rash doesn't look that bad. I offered dumbly, changing the subject. It seems to be mostly cleared up already. Are you kidding me? Leslie almost shrieked. She tore the covers from her bed, revealing the extent of what I had done. Her legs were red like she'd been scalded with hot water. Yellow splotches covered them, bubbling up in places with numerous oozing sores. Further up inside of her thighs, cracked, Bleeding flesh disappeared out of sight under her gown. But worst of all, on each leg, the rash had spread fiercest and most viciously over unmistakable bruises in the shape of an angry grip from a pair of hands with almost unnaturally long fingers. I covered my mouth, unable to conceal my horror. Leslie looked at me through tear-filled eyes, struggling not to break down again. He did this to me. I didn't ask her how she knew. I already had the answer firsthand, and what I realized when I saw her legs repulsed me to the core. He had done this. He had touched her there, and Lord knows where else, and I was to blame for it. My disgust at the sight was replaced with disgust at myself. I started crying, shaking my head, trying to expel some form of an apology, but a shameful fear gripped my tongue and strangled my vocal cords, refusing to let me tell Leslie the truth. She knew I had caused this, that I had cursed her. Not only our friendship would end, but so much more. Who knew what her parents would do, what my mother would do, what the whole town would do to me. Maybe they'd bring back witch burning. 
So I said nothing. I just stood there, shaking my head and crying with her. She covered up again and held on to me, and we wept together. I could feel her trembling in my arms, and I knew it was partially in fear of going back to sleep and being visited again by whatever ghoul I had set upon her. It's going to get better, I promised her with a whisper. After a minute, I couldn't take it anymore. I needed to get out of there and throw up. I told Leslie I needed to get home. We hugged again, and as I walked around her bed back to the door, I snatched the flower pot off her window sill and stuffed it in the pocket of my jacket. It was just small enough to fit and not make much of a noticeable bulge. I grabbed my backpack and sprinted out of the house without another word. I walked straight past my house, continuing on down the road to Hillside Cemetery, where I took the pot out of my pocket and dumped it out on Leslie's father's grave, where it belonged. No, I hadn't taken the dirt from the wrong spot. I knew that much. Something else was wrong. I realized then that I had no real understanding of the forces I had meddled with, and the only solution was to not toy with them again. Within a week, Leslie returned to school. As I had foreseen, with the removal of the graveyard dirt from her room, the nightmares ended, and the rash eventually went away. Unfortunately, it had gone on so long and progressed to such an extent that both her legs remained horribly scarred. She underwent numerous treatments to try to alleviate some of the worst of it, but she never fully recovered. Make no mistake, I paid for my crime. It came after a track meet several towns over and three months later. The coach loaded us all up onto the bus and I sat in the back, resting my head on the window to watch heavy clouds roll in, as if to guide us home. Rain started coming down, gentle and relaxing. It was so peaceful. The sound of numerous conversations around me seemed to fade away, and all I heard was the rain on the window. The bus rolled to a stop. I closed my eyes, listening to the pitter-patter of the rain, but when I felt the bus stop, I looked up, wondering what was going on. To my surprise, everyone else was gone. Every seat was empty. The bus was dead silent, except for the intensifying sound of the precipitation outside. The rain was coming down harder with each passing second. It started pounding at the roof like a barrage of fists. Hello? Nobody was going to answer me. Outside, everything seemed to be awash in a thick gray wall of rain. It came down so heavily, I couldn't see more than a few feet away. It was as if the world itself had vanished along with the coach and all my teammates. I didn't know what to do. It didn't make any sense to me. Where could they have gone? I sat there, feeling my manic grow as my heartbeat quickened. It felt like I was breathing through a straw. The door at the front of the bus squeaked open all by itself, and from out of the shroud of rain outside stepped a man. He was tall, having to lean forward to keep from dragging his head along the roof. Despite having just stepped out of the rain, he looked completely dry. 
His hair was pure white and meticulously combed, but so thin it barely concealed his scalp. He wore a black suit, black pants, a white shirt, and a black tie, all clean and proper. But his face, oh God, I'll never forget his face. His skin was paper-thin and yellowing, stretched over his skull like plastic. I couldn't even tell you what color his eyes were, because his pupils were so dilated that his irises looked completely black. Two dark orbs set in the white backdrop of his face. His flesh was peeled back away from his gums, giving him a permanent sneer, and as I stared in escalating horror at him, he chattered his teeth at me like a wind-up toy. Slowly, he stalked toward me down the aisle of the bus, grinning with malevolent purpose. His hands, equally see-through against tendon and bone, liver-spotted and covered with fine white hair, dragged along the tops of the seats. Each finger ended in flaking chalk-white skin and a gritty yellow nail. As he lumbered ever closer, eight seats, seven seats, he opened his mouth and ran a thick, dry tongue across his teeth. A hiss of sinister eagerness escaped like a swarm of flies from his throat. His eyes bulged in their sockets, staring directly into mine hypnotically. I'm asleep, I whispered, feeling a wave of revulsion at his hideous form. As if in response, he shook his head and raised both arms toward me. We both knew that even if I was, it meant nothing. Even if this fiend was only in my head, it still had the potential to harm me. His long, spidery fingers reached out, seeking me, and I recoiled. They missed my face by millimeters, only managing to grab a lock of hair, but it was enough for him to pull with furious intensity, jerking my head toward him. In a panic, I snapped my head back to escape. He lurched into the seat at me, and in the same instance, I struck my head sharply against the window behind me with a screech. I awoke immediately, my head rebounding off the glass and sending whiplash pain through my neck. Everyone around me leapt to their feet, startled by my scream. Even as I tumbled to the floor, I felt only half awake, like the man in the black suit was right behind me, reaching for me with his gnarled fingers, and I continued to scream and make a scene, causing the bus driver to slam on the brakes, and everyone on the bus got thrown forward. It didn't matter to me that a few jokes were made at my expense after everything settled down. The whole scene seemed amusing to everyone who witnessed it, but I had more pressing concerns. I was lost in thought trying to understand where the man had come from, how he had gotten to me. His presence still lingered in the air, the slight smell of rot that I couldn't clear out of my nostrils. My head throbbed in the back and stung in the front where he had grabbed me by the hair. No, no, it couldn't be the same man. I never touched the dirt. And that was months ago. The only time I had come anywhere near was... I reached into my jacket pocket, the same jacket I had worn to Leslie's that day. 
the jacket I'd stuffed the pot of dirt in as I left. There, in the bottom of the pocket, I found the slightest pinch of dirt, just enough to hold between two fingers. Jesus, that was all it took. I turned both pockets inside out and brushed them clean, still trembling from the experience. Even then, I would never fall asleep wearing that jacket again. When I got home, I found that the lock of hair the man had snagged had gone shock white. Afraid that it would somehow spread, much like the rash, I cut it off. It still grows out white as snow, another scar to remind me of what happens when you play games with the dead. Who was that man, you may be wondering. I wish I had an answer for you. I've hunted and searched all the microfiche in the town library, every obituary from every recorded year, and there's nothing to explain who he is or why his presence was mingled in the dirt from Leslie's father's grave. The best I can figure, he's someone that did something terrible, and the town, or more likely, a few angry citizens, dealt with him outside of the law. He was unceremoniously interred in a place no one would think to look, a plot at the cemetery that just happened to be purchased later for the remains of another. That's all I know, and it's enough for me. Some things are best left buried. I hope you enjoyed A Touch of Graveyard Dirt by author William Dolphin, as performed by yours truly. It's getting late, and time for the kitties to be put to bed, with maybe a book or two to settle their nerves. But what happens when it's the child, not the adult, who has tales to tell? William Dolphin presents us with a precocious youngster who proceeds to do just that. Without further ado, I present to you Bedtime Stories. I was tucking my daughter into bed one night last week. Normally, she's a huge hassle to make to go to bed, but that night she seemed actually eager to go to sleep. I sat down in the chair beside her bed and asked her what story she wanted me to read. Uh, she smiled at me but didn't say anything. Smiley Shark? I asked. No. I can read with my eyes shut. No. Well, what would you like me to read? I want to tell a story tonight. She exclaimed with an enthusiasm I was unused to. Oh, you've got a story, do you? I said. Well, let's hear it then. She scrambled out from under her covers and climbed into my lap. It's about a man, she said looking at me with a sudden intensity. Every night he walks down the street. He wears a big red coat. In his pockets, he's got a paper with a list of names on it. She lowered her voice to a whisper briefly. It's a list of bad children. They threw a tantrum, or they dumped their dinner on the floor, or they smacked their little sister in the face and made her cry. You mean Santa Claus? I asked. 
No, let me finish my story. Okay, I'm sorry. He walks down a different street every night. He's got his list of kids and what bad things they'd done that day. Sometimes he ends up walking down the street where one of those bad kids lives. If he does, he stops at their house. He doesn't have to check his list. He just knows who's on it and if it's their house. If he comes to your house, she said, pointing at me, he'll open the front door even if it's locked. He comes in and looks at the photos of you on the walls. He goes into your bedroom and stands by your bed. His hands are always in his pockets because his fingers are really long and scare people. But when he finds you, he takes his hands out of his pockets and covers your face with them. She demonstrated this to me by putting her own small hands over her face. He puts his hands on your face so you can't breathe. You can't even feel him doing it because you're asleep. He keeps them there till you're dead. Then he takes his list out and crosses your name off it. Then he leaves and nobody knows he was even there. She concluded the awful tale by crossing her arms and declaring, matter-of-factly, that's why you got to be good every day, because you never know if the man in the red coat is going to walk down your street that night. We sat there beside her bed in silence for a moment. She beamed proudly, while I felt like all the blood was draining from my head. That's a scary story, I finally said. Only if you're a bad kid, she replied. I wondered how confidently she'd have said those words if she'd thrown one of her usual tantrums that day. It suddenly occurred to me that she'd been particularly well-behaved all night and wondered if this macabre story was the key. I tucked her in with a hug and a kiss and went to trade places with my wife, who was dealing with her other daughter, a toddler, who won't go to sleep unless you snuggle her for about an hour. Later, with both kids down, I sat on the couch with my wife while she watched one of her shows and asked during the commercial, Did Katie tell you her story? No, we read Little House in the Big Woods. Did you tell her a story about a man who kills bad children? Of course not. The show came back on, so nothing more was said on the subject, but it nagged at me the rest of the night. As passionate as I am about horror, I make sure to pad any scary stories I tell my daughter with a bit of humor. I don't want her afraid of the dark. I just want to nurture her imagination and creativity, you know? The next day, we were drawing together. She likes to have me draw cartoon characters, and then she colors them in with her crayons. At one point, she came up and held a piece of paper over her face and yelled, Boo! at me while I was at my desk. She had drawn this cartoony kind of face on her own. It looked to me somewhat like Ernie from Sesame Street. Is that me? I asked. No. Who is that? She paused for a moment as if trying to come up with a name. It's a zombie, she finally declared. Ooh, scary. What's that line coming out of its mouth? That's its tongue. She drew me another picture after that. I thought it was a female version of the same face, 
but she had added a smaller drawing of a head beside it. I took both of these drawings to work and have them hanging up by my desk. A few nights later, after we had gotten ready for bed, she declared to me once again that she had a story to tell me. I set down the books I'd pulled from her shelf and sat down in the chair by her bed. Once again, she crawled into my lap, sat up straight and looked me right in the eyes. Is it about the man in the red coat? I asked. No, it's about a mommy. Does she have a good little girl or a bad little girl? She's got a little boy. But then she died and the daddy and the little boy moved away. That's a depressing story. She looks for him every night. I thought you said she died. She just looked at me and I could see in her eyes that she was not making this story up as she went, but reciting it to me and trying to figure out the answer to my question. She put her hand on her chin for a moment in an almost grown-up way. She's a ghost, she finally declared. Oh, well, that makes sense. She came back to her home, but her little boy was gone, so she went looking for him. Did she find him? No, she's always looking. She can't drive a car, so she got to walk, and it's real far, and she doesn't even know where to go, so she just walks. She's got blood on her feet because her feet get hurt from all the walking. If she hears a baby crying, she starts crying too. Sometimes she'll cry for hours after hearing a baby cry. If she sees a child out at night, she gets confused and thinks it's her little boy. She'll run up and try and grab the little kid right out of the parent's arms. If the kid's alone, she'll snap it up and carry it off. Those ones are never found. She always comes back because she hasn't found her boy. She might not even recognize him anymore because he's been dead for so long. How long has she been dead, I ask? A long time. Katie replied, shaking her head. Well, how did she die? I don't really know why I asked that question. She cut herself and lost all her blood. That was too much. I didn't like that she knew these stories. I was upset that someone had told her these awful things. Who told you that story? I asked in my most serious voice. She looked away for a moment and I thought I'd frightened her with my tone. It took me a moment to realize she was looking at the window on the far end of her bed. Outside it was dark, but I could see the trees at the edge of our backyard being blown about by the wind. I waited, then shook her slightly to break the spell that the window seemed to have her under. Who told you? I repeated. She suddenly looked scared and upset, like she was going to cry. I'm sorry, she wailed and hugged me tightly. Sorry for what? I asked, rubbing her back gently to calm her. Her little hands gripped my shirt and I realized she was shaking. For, for, she sniffed, for talking to strangers. Please don't get mad. Please don't let the man with the red coat find me. I hugged her even tighter. You weren't bad. Nothing's going to happen to you. What stranger did you talk to? The man who came to my window. He told me the stories. Her words made me freeze. We live on the second floor of a duplex. 
I got up, setting my daughter on her bed. She cried and begged me not to leave, but I hushed her. I walked across the room to the window. It was shut, but the wind was howling so fiercely you could hear it through two panes of glass. Outside, across the backyard, was dense woods. The trees seemed to shake their branches at me menacingly. What did he look like? I said, trying to sound calm. He looks like in my drawing. I thought about the drawing she'd made. I get chills even now as I look at it and write this. That simple line for a tongue suddenly seemed snake-like to me. Those eyes a little too frightening. She had drawn people before, but they never had the same look as these drawings. That's when I noticed the marks on the window's glass. It looked like something sharp had been dragged down it, like the edge of a coin or a rock. Four jagged lines, the fingers spaced apart, crisscrossing repeatedly in one spot against the window. And at the bottom, four deep grooves in the wooden pane. I hope you enjoyed Bedtime Stories by author William Dolphin, as performed by yours truly. Our fourth tale by William Dolphin is a short and shivery one. When you hire the best for the job at hand, some things don't show up on the background check, like very, very recent events. Without further ado, I present to you The Babysitter. The year was 1989. The McAllisters had just moved to the small town of Northfield. Todd McAllister had finally gotten his teaching license, along with a job teaching history at the high school. Maria was content to stay home with their two children, Alexis, a rambunctious four-year-old, and Franklin, who had just learned to walk. When the children were down for their afternoon naps, she got a little time to herself, which she spent neatly stitching together a variety of plush animals. The town was quiet and peaceful, nestled in a shady valley, mostly bordered by forest. The noisiest it normally got was when the occasional train passed through on its way to other places. The biggest story the police blotter ever got was a drunk and disorderly. It was late October, and the deciduous trees were turning from green to yellow, orange and fiery red. There was a bitter cold wind blowing down from the mountains, and people on the sidewalks would angle their chins down for that extra bit of warmth. Plumes of smoke drifted lazily from many a chimney that day. There was a town hall meeting that evening. Maria wished to attend it. The town hosted a bazaar every month, where local artisans and crafters could sell their creations, and she wanted to sign up for a table to sell some of her stuffed animals. She decided to hire a babysitter to watch Alexis and Franklin. One of the other teachers had recommended a girl to Todd by the name of Caitlin Evans. He hadn't had her in his class, but was told she was a straight-A student, good with children, and had babysat for many of the parents in the town. She didn't have a boyfriend and kept mostly to herself, 
So there was no reason to worry about her running up a huge phone bill or having a bunch of other teens over who'd end up trashing the house. Caitlin arrived at the McAllister house promptly at 6 p.m. Todd offered to take her coat and scarf, but she shook her head, saying in a very soft voice that she was still cold from the walk over and wanted to keep them on for a while. She looked ill to Maria. Her complexion seemed pale. She asked uh, Caitlin if she was okay, and the girl nodded silently. They introduced Alexis and Franklin to her. Franklin cried at being left with a stranger, but Alexis took to her immediately, clinging to her leg and following her around as she got a tour of the house. "'When will you be home by?' Caitlin asked. "'We won't be later than nine, Todd said. "'Okay, but you have to promise. "'No later than nine. "'You have to be home before nine. "'I can't stay later,' she said. "'I promise,' Todd said with a smile. "'Todd and Maria attended the town hall, "'where Maria was able to sign up for a table "'at the coming bazaar.' They had made some new acquaintances and ended up staying a little later than they had anticipated. When they heard the town bell chime nine times, they realized they were late getting home, said their goodbyes, grabbed their coats and left. Outside the town hall, people were gathered, talking rapidly at each other. Everybody had a look of horror and shock written on their face. Someone was crying. Todd and Maria wondered what was going on, but didn't have time to stop and ask. As they passed the crowd, however, they heard one woman telling another who had just come out, "'Did you hear? The Evans girl killed herself.' Her words made Todd and Maria stop in shock and rush quickly to the group. "'Caitlin Evans?' Todd asked in a panic. "'Yes, that's right,' the lady said thoughtfully. "'Poor thing.' Can't say I'm surprised, though. Father's something of an alcoholic and a mean drunk. That. Why, just last month, George Taylor had to call the police five times for all the noise from his yelling. And George lives two doors down from him. I used to see her walking to school every morning, and... Todd and Maria stood rigid, not listening. Their minds a whirl of confusion and horror. Who was watching Alexis and Franklin? Had she killed herself in front of their children? They ran the entire way home, expecting to find police cars with flashing lights and ambulances parked on the lawn. Instead, the house lay quiet when they got there. The porch light was still on, and the front door lock as they had left it. Inside, the house was empty. Caitlin, Alexis, and Franklin were nowhere to be found. Maria got on the phone and called the police while Todd continued searching, calling their names. He checked the attic and the backyard, but they were nowhere to be found. Coming back inside, he listened as Maria cried into the phone. Were there any other children there? She asked the person on the other end of the line. Todd sat down, his legs feeling like jelly. On the kitchen table was a note. He picked it up and unfolded it. It was written in a feminine hand, Caitlin's. You promised you'd be home by nine. 
I can't stay any later. I can't leave the children alone, so they're coming with me. I'm sorry. Kate. Maria hung up the phone. Her face was pale. She held the table for support, and Todd grabbed her, guiding her to a chair. What did they say? he asked her. Were Alexis and Franklin there? Did they see what happened? No, was all Maria could say. No. Todd showed her the note. She said she took them with her. They weren't at her house, Maria said. She stared at the note, then at Todd. Her eyes seemed to look through him at something that wasn't there. She had been dead for at least five hours. I hope you enjoyed The Babysitter by author William Dolphin, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash dolphin. Once more, that's simplyscarypodcast.com slash dolphin, spelled D-A-L. P-H-I-N. Don't just take my word for it. See, don't look away, and it's haunting tales for yourself. And if you decide to give any of this talented author's books a read, please consider leaving a quality review and a kind word, and be sure to let them know you heard about his stories on this program, and that Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you for personally joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep if you can. <laughs>
Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, 
which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.